Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. We focus on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis radiating from this extraordinary health and economic crisis and what can be done about them. Policy Speaking is hosted by Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or head over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writings. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon. I'm Edward Greenspan and welcome to Policy Speaking. The COVID-19 pandemic has accelerated changes to the way we work and sparked, at least for now, a remarkable adaptability among employers and employees. Here at PPF, we've been investigating future work issues for a long time. We run a project called Brave New Work, an obvious play off one of the world's great dystopian novels, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Now that's not to say the future work will be dystopian or that it won't. This is where policy and organizational change come in. How do we adapt ourselves and our institutions and how do we shape the future we want? I've been saying since the early stages of this that the future work now has become the present of work. This is something that our guest today has also observed from her perch as a leading commentator on how we should manage this journey into the future of work. Heather McGowan has referred to the pandemic as a great social experiment with online education, with remote work, with understanding how much learning and work is best done together versus remotely. She has commented that a lot of what she expected to see over the next five years has actually been crammed into the past five months, even the past five weeks. Heather earns her living, or learns her living, helping leaders prepare organizations and their workforces for what some call the fourth industrial revolution. The first industrial revolution, the one you studied in school, was propelled by water and steam power. The second by electricity. We've been living the third industrial revolution for the past five decades. It has been marked by computerization and by automation of physical labor. And it has laid the foundations for this fourth industrial revolution, characterized by the rapid advancement of technological tools into the domain of human knowledge work, a kind of melding of people and technology. Heather has been gathering her insights of what this all means and where it's headed as co-author of a new book called The Adaptation Advantage, Let Go, Learn Fast, and Thrive in the Future of Work. In it, she puts forward the case that the models of employment and education we developed in the early 20th century are simply unsuited for the dynamic economy of today. And so there's much to talk about. And the timing is good from a PPF perspective as we get ready for our virtual Brave New Work conference, June 16th to 18th. More on that at the end of the podcast. So thank you for being with us uh, today, Heather. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Well, great to have you and uh, uh, great to be doing a little bit of uh, perusing of your book and your writings and your speaking online, uh, which I recommend to everyone. I want to start by asking you, we've been hearing the phrase continuous learning and lifelong learning for decades now, it seems. Are we walking the talk yet? No, no, we're not, because we're still putting forth the expectation, learn, work, retire. And we're still asking little kids what they want to be when they grow up. We're still asking university students to pick a major before they step foot on campus or dial into Zoom, as it may be today. And in that, pick a future self based on what's around us today. And two things are happening. One, the velocity of change has never been greater. 
and we've made the greatest leaps in human longevity in this lifespan. So your, your career is probably going to be a decade longer with many more roles. So why are we still preparing people for a singular role and a singular identity, which is actually harmful when it comes to learning and adapting for life? Well, how does that fit with, we live in a world of, it seems, ever greater specialization. I mean, you're not just an epidemiologist anymore. You're a very particular kind of epidemiologist. And it used to be that you were just a doctor, the same in engineering, the same in so many in so many areas. How does that fit with the world in which you've got to prepare for all kinds of change during your career? Yeah, so there was a book written a couple of years ago called The Neo, Rise of the Neo-Generalists or the Neo-Generalists. And their general thesis is that we are coming out of a phase of hyper-specialization into a phase of neo-generalists. Now, when it comes to some of the examples you just mentioned, particularly in medicine or high tech, you may become increasingly specialized, but there'll be fewer people doing that. We need more people who can learn and adapt continuously and take on multiple roles. Right, so you use the phrase in the book, I think, from learning to work to working to learn. Yeah, that's my mantra. Yeah, well, what exactly do you mean by that one? It means that we, we learned once in order to work. We, learning was crammed in the first third of our lives and it was only sufficient to get us on that career escalator. After that, you just rode the career escalator up with nominal amounts of learning as needed. Now we're gonna work and learn continuously. Work and learning are a combined act. So where do the breakdowns occur? Where are the shortcomings happening? I mean, clearly you, you talk about, about schools, so I, I want to understand a little bit more about post-secondary education in its various guises, or maybe even before post-secondary education, for uh, all I know, as well on job training. So where are the, where, where are the breakdowns and, and what do we do about them? Okay, so let's actually, the whole system, I think, is in some form or fashion breaking down. So if you look at what education is in the United States. Right now, K-12 is let's figure out who's smart. And it's smart in, a, in one specific, very narrow band, by the way. So I don't actually mean that universally smart. I mean smart in a, in a certain dimension. And then we decide those kids are going to go into O-level or AP classes because they're college bound to the upper tiers. And then high school becomes all about getting you into the right university in the right major. And then university becomes about preparing you for the first job. Now, if you're going to have 16, 17 different jobs across your career, and you're going to be marked more by your ability to learn and adapt than your ability to execute on that first job, then the whole system is faulty. So we can unpack that or I can go on to the, the next thing. Well, I guess we can unpack that for a moment. I, I, I mean, are we going to stick with the institutions we have and reform them? We could. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what happens on the other side of the global pandemic we're in when it comes particularly to higher education, because uh, higher education has become a more of a weight than a propellant for a lot of folks. If you're graduating with mortgage level debts that only qualify you for your first or maybe your second job, and then you've got to figure it out as you go along, we're not actually offering the kind of social mobility we promise. Research by, a, I believe at Harvard, Raj Chetty found that if you were born in 1940, you had a 90% chance of doing better than your parents. You were born in 1980, that dropped to 50%. A lot of factors in there. Some of it was the second world, post boom of the second world war. But even when you strip that stuff out, we're just not getting the social mobility we once had. It's just the cost of it is too much. And it's not really preparing you in a lot of instances for the entire arc of your career. We can do better and we could probably do it with the existing institutions. 
Well, it seems to me that educational institutions, and I, I say this with uh, great respect, I went to several myself, and uh, not necessarily always so successfully, but uh, several myself, they're conservative institutions. I mean, they're, they're, they've been doing the same thing since the uh, since the Second World War, really, in, in the GI Bill in the United States, the Veterans Charter here, uh, here in Canada, and they did a very good job of it. They're mm-hmm. used to taking young people and getting them ready. They're not necessarily used to taking people in their 30s and 40s who are back in. So I guess, again, I I sort of wonder, perhaps the pandemic will light a fire under them because obviously they've been forced to do things differently. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I did three tours of duty in higher ed institutions trying to help them change, which is is about like moving a cemetery. It's not it's not easy. It's one of the statistics that I uh, that I came across in my research that Federal Reserve Bank of New York found that 27% of people ever work in the field of their undergraduate major. And I have come to the conclusion those 27% of people are largely faculty members. So they're telling people, don't take anything outside your major because they never did and it worked out for them. And so they're stuck in a paradigm that maybe never existed, but certainly isn't going to exist for the people they're teaching. It's not true of all faculty. A lot of faculty are fantastic. Most faculty are fantastic. But what is, what's a normal for them, what's the norm for them, is not true for most of their students. And that makes it a challenge. And they're also, uh, faculty members are, are brought up through a, a system that rewards hyper-specialization and getting the right answer. Uh, and we're now have a generation of people that need to find in frame problems, not just solve them. That's an entirely different skill set. So if you look at between 1960 and 1990, we doubled the number of higher institutions in the U.S. I don't know if in Canada it's a similar kind of boom, but I would imagine it was because in the shadow of the in the shadow of World War II and the beginning of the Third Industrial Revolution, we needed an educated workforce that could do what they were told. They could could perform based on the task for which they were trained to do. And they did, and they did a great job, but now we need something different. And it's, I I have a lot of empathy for faculty members because the promise they were given isn't going to be there in the way that it was given to them. We need something entirely different. So let's continue to unpack the very, very long-winded question I asked you a few minutes ago and, and go to the on-job training part of that. I and mean, one, of, one of the things one sees in OECD numbers, it's that countries like the United States and Canada are fairly low for on-job training. Is that a good place for this to be happening? And again, what would employers need to do? Well, IBM did a study, I think it was a, about a year, last fall, and found that 120 million people worldwide need to be retrained in the next three years. That's a huge market. Who's going to meet that market? I wrote an article and said, higher ed, the workforce is calling. Are you going to answer? Because in the U.S., I'm sorry, all oh, my numbers are U.S., but that's what I know best, but and you can tell me the Canadian numbers. We've got 20 million under, new undergrads every year, and so that's a blood sport to get those 20 million. But of that 120 million globally, 12 million are in the U.S. So that's a huge market that nobody's paying attention to. So in answer to your question, I don't really know. I think it's going to be some new entity that emerges or some new partnership, because I don't think the corporations can take it all on themselves. And I don't think the higher ed institutions have the context to know what to do and how to do it. So I think it has to be some sort of partnership or new entity that emerges. It's just the need, the kind of model for higher ed is if you need to make a new major in higher ed, for example, it takes about a decade. So, you know, it takes a couple of years to figure out what are the skills and knowledge you need to do, a couple of years to build the curriculum, four to six years to get people through it. So between the time you have a need to you get need relief, it's a decade. That's way too long. So we do need a different system and different types of training. And degrees are not always the answer. 
Right. Well, kind of, I, we sometimes remark in the research that we've done, Brave New Work Project, that that policies and, and organizational practices were designed for a binary age. They were designed for an age in which people were either in work or they were finished with work. They were in school or they were finished with school. They were either retired or not retired, not coming in and out uh, as you draw so magnificently in the charts in your book. But it's not a linear world anymore. So, so, so there is a question of how we prepare for a, a post-binary, post-linear sort of world, isn't there? Yeah, right. The way I describe it is it used to be discrete bands, education, career, retire, and you move through them linearly. And now it's more learn because learn doesn't imply an end state the way being educated does as a one-time thing. Leverage the signal that work and learning are a combined act. And then longevity because we didn't plan for, save for, nor should we have a 30-year retirement. It's not good for us psychologically or cognitively, and most of us can't afford it financially. So we need to figure out new ways to have people move through that longer, more volatile arc, which includes a lot of revisiting learning. Yeah, it's it, it, it sort of, uh, I love how you put it in uh, one of the speeches I saw, how the actuaries basically figured out you work, you retire, <laughs> you get your pension, and then within a year or two, you die. And actually, that's what the numbers showed, isn't it? Yeah, actually, uh, I presented that in Israel, and Jack Lew was there, Obama's Treasury Secretary, and he said to me, I agree with everything you said, Heather, but we actually never expected to pay. There was an error in the actual. We ended up living longer right after we finished that calculation, so they never expected to pay. <laughs> yeah, well, I know people aren't even confident that mo their money will last uh, forever, and, and having gone through the pandemic, the savings in some ways have been uh, have been dented as well. But do you see those people also coming in and out of the workforce? Do you see a, a more senior workforce out of them? Yeah, I don't. I don't. I mean, I draw it to to understand that work and learning are a combined act, but I don't necessarily think, okay, I'm going to leave my job and I'm going to go study for six months and then I'm going to come back to my job. But more that those things are going to be combined in an organization. Like I, I can envision a time, not into in the too far distant future, where you have a, a chief learning scientist in the C-suite who is in charge of looking at where learning takes place and socializing it, where learning needs to take place and planning interventions. Because if you if you strip away everything mentally routine or predictable, if it's true that technology can consume those tasks over the next decade or so, the only thing left is learning. Your only competitive advantage is learning. So that's where you would want to invest. I found your vision fairly optimistic and, and maybe too optimistic for the times that we're in, uh, if anything. And I, I, I want to discuss that in a moment. But while a lot of people... I have focused on the number of jobs and the number of tasks within jobs that will get, get disrupted and anywhere would say 11%, some say 40 plus percent, the numbers are, are, are great. You're in a sense um, shrugging that off, I'd almost say, and, and saying, look, this can be enriching, not enslaving. This can be positive, not negative. So is this a good thing for people? Um, I think that we're going to, we are, we're going through a world of pain right now. And it's not just the pandemic. I mean, uh, Warren Buffett once said once when the tide goes out, you find out who's swimming naked. And the reality is we're all swimming naked because whether it's racial injustice or economic in insecurity or economic or equal, uh, income inequality or the way we've trashed the planet, there's a lot of stuff to address. But I am uh, an optimist and I am hopeful because when I look at what we've, we've got, we've got 5,000 years of recorded history. And of that 5,000 years, if you zero in on the last 70, that's where we've made the greatest strides in improving the human condition, from lifting people out of global poverty 
to lifting people into literacy to the short period of time we've had the internet connect, connecting more than half the globe. So I think we're on the right longer arc. I think we're in a very, very painful moment. We have some real serious things to address around income inequality that are exasperated by rising technology. Climate change disproportionately affects people who are poorer than people who are richer. So we've got things to address there, but I have just a fundamental belief that we will continue on our march to improve the human condition. Okay, well, I'm going to come back to some of the things that would concern me on the way to this world, as you've just identified some yourself in a moment. But, but first, first, I do want to go back to something that I find uh, hopeful. And I'm going to quote um, uh, from the book, where it says, in this new paradigm, we are defined less by what we do, fixed occupational identity, and more by why, purpose, and how, ever-expanding capacity through continuous learning. I was really interested, particularly in this idea of, of purpose, being a driver of work and a driver of careers. Talk a little bit more about, about what you mean by that. Okay, Dan Pink wrote Drive more than a decade ago, I think, or just about a decade ago. And in it, he exhaustively proved that internal versus external motivations are much more successful. So if you light the fire in somebody by connecting to what they're naturally interested in, what they're naturally curious about, and what they care about, they will work so much harder for you than if you scare them or reward them. Yet we still build systems of work and systems of learning around scaring and rewarding as opposed to inspiring. And I think that we have the potential to change that. You go even further, I think, in, in talking about organizations themselves. and They shouldn't think of themselves as functional deliverers of something. They should think of themselves in a purpose way as well. Yeah. I mean, if you define yourself by why you exist and how you deliver value, you have so much more in a position to be agile. Now look at Netflix, and I'm not talking about what Netflix's mission in the world is, because I don't actually know what their mission in the world is, but they didn't define it's, themselves. It's to help as, people through the pandemic in the evening. Yeah. I think that's it. <laughs> right now, it sure is helping me. I have a Zoom call tonight with my binge-watching discussion group. There we go. But, and that's helping a lot of us get through in all seriousness. So in 1997, uh, Netflix shipped DVDs by mail. If they defined themselves by that value output, they would have been stuck there. In less than a, about a decade later, they switched to streaming. And then four years after that, they stripped, switched to original content. Now 44% of the re revenues come from original content. If Amazon defined themselves simply as a bookseller, they wouldn't be delivering all of our goods at this moment. Whether that's a good thing or not, there's sort of an agility to def defining yourself by the reason you exist, how the world looks differently because you exist, and then focusing on increasing your capacity so you could pivot ahead of the required change. So... I, now I'm going to go, I guess, back to the the, the, pro, the thing that gives me uh, a little pause. And as I said, I never want to give anyone a hard time for being optimistic because there's not enough optimism in the world. So I want to be careful in some ways here. But as I was reading your arguments, they were seeming to me in a way like the optimism of 20th century America, the optimism that we that we can get to the moon, the optimism that if we put our mind to things, we can get them done. But we're living in a 21st century America that has become more polarized, that people are frightened. On the one hand, they embrace technology and use it and live it. On the other hand, they're, they're, they're very anxious about what it's going to do to their livelihoods, and they haven't been so adaptable. What we've seen is lashing out often rather than adaptability. So uh, can we carry enough people through this uh, into this fourth industrial revolution? I guess I could take the alternative approach and say, well, why bother? And I got to believe... I've got to believe I've had enough life-threatening experiences in my own life and my family's life 
to believe that if you think this, there is a solution that's better out there, you can get there. And so I have to believe that we are on a march to improve the human condition. Right now, we have a real crisis of leadership on a global scale, and we're seeing that. My city's burning right now. Uh, I'm going at five o'clock to a Black Lives Matter protest that's at the end of my street where they're boarding up businesses. We are in a dark moment. I'm not denying that. I'm not delusionally optimistic, but I have to remain hopeful. And I think more of us have to be remain insistent and intentional. I wonder what the basis, though, of policy is to help smooth us through the dark sides and the bumpy uh, the bumpy part. Even if one looks back at the Industrial Revolution from 200 years later, you mm -hmm. kind of see, as you were describing in another context a few moments ago, you know, huge rises in people's living standards and their life expectancy, a very positive, very positive outcome. Decades and decades of, of disruption and pain along the way. Mm -hmm. I've seen uh, one academic's work that describes this as the Engels pause when there was no, when inequality grew as well in that period and there was no per capita growth in, uh, in, in uh, well, there was, it was no average growth in people's, uh, in people's wages over, over long years. And that gave rise to Engels and Marx and a whole bunch of things that uh, proved quite ruinous in the, uh, in the 20th century. So I guess the question is, how does policy respond to trying to make sure that people can make that transition, that you know, we give them uh, the ability to jump over this, this chasm? Yeah, and I don't know if you've seen any of my most recent articles. I think this is the third existential threat of our lifetimes. So in, I'm almost 50, in the last 50 years, income inequality has skyrocketed in a lot of the developed world, particularly the United States. Our knowledge about the climate and man-made activities impact on it has been crystal clear for at least 50 years. We haven't changed our behavior. But in this global pandemic, we have paused our economy. It's not an easy thing to do and you can't trade livelihoods for lives. But we have paused our economy to protect the most vulnerable in our healthcare system. We put them ahead of profits. It's the first sign to me that we're getting to be more on the right track and making some of those corrections that we need to, to make to have a, a better future that unleashes more human potential. So do you imagine that as we work our way through the kinds of prescriptions and the kinds of attitudes that you talk about in your book that we will at the same time address some um, inequality issues? I think we have to. I mean, I think it's in our best interest. And I think, you know, I'm not a politician at all, but I think that we have to reframe the argument about creating taxpayers. Instead of talking about investing in this or giving money to that, what we're really doing is investing in future taxpayers and unleashing more humans who can rise to their God-given talents and increase their human potential is better for our company. You look at the economic studies, income inequality in developed countries leads to contraction in GDP. Right. I guess what you're saying also is that adaptability is inclusive economics. It has to be, I think. So let's end up with some pieces of advice for uh, different groups, okay? And I'm going to ask you three groups, I guess, employers, workers, employer, employees, employers, employees, and governments. So what would your number one piece of advice be to start with for employers? Coping with the new world that's come at them. So employers, and, I've, and a lot of the keynote talks that I do are to, they're all over the place, but it seems to me there's a high concentration of people in HR and learning development. And those folks are kind of at the forefront of the shift from hiring people based upon things they've done before. Like, I'm going to hire you into this job because you've got past skills and experience that tell me that you've done it before. We've got so many more things ahead of us that have not been done before that that model doesn't work anymore. We've been driving, looking in the rearview mirror, 
now the car is going faster. For, so for those guys, we need a new means of attracting talent, selecting talent, and nurturing talent. So we've got to, there's there some examples I put in the book about how do we think about new ways of screening for talent? Is a degree really the best proxy for it? Is it working at a company they know the brand name, the best proxy for it? Frida Palo, who I mentioned in the book, her company Pymetrics has found that as wonderful as Ivy League schools are, and they're fantastic, they're not always the best proxy for the best talent. And past experience or longevity at a company, longevity at a company may come from somebody who just flies below the radar all the time and never upsets the apple cart, but maybe you need someone who upsets the apple cart. So what is it you're really looking for in an organization? So I'd say to employers, take a good, hard look. The talent in your organization is going to be your number one determinant of success. So look very hard at how you select that talent, how you nurture that talent, and how you retain that talent. Okay, well, now we'll talk about the talent. Or perhaps some of the employees who may not see themselves as talent, maybe they are insecure about their future prospects and don't feel the sun is shining on them in the same way. What's your advice for them? I think there are about, you know, in the U.S., there are about 40 million adults feeling that way right now. I don't know. I think in Canada, it's probably, you're, you're like 10% of us generally on unemployment, aren't you? Generally, we are 10% of the United States. But there are a lot of people who've been recently disrupted from the workforce. And I, I want to say to those guys, it is not your fault. There is a lot we need you to contribute, and there's going to be a place for you. Hang on, because I know what it feels like, and it feels like to be thrown out of the workforce where you're being told that you're not needed right now. It doesn't mean you're not going to be needed soon. So for, for those guys, I, I would say you were not the sum total of whatever your title was. You are not the sum total of your company association. You're never the sum total of your degree. You're something more. And even if you have skills that are not the highlight of an organization right now, you are undoubtedly are going to make a positive contribution again. And in many organizations, we sort of focus on, I use an iceberg and metaphor in my, in my book, that we focus at the top of the stuff, the skills to do, because that's what we can see. It's out of the water. So I need this marketing person, this cybersecurity person, this whatever. And then at the waterline, I call them enablers, uniquely human skills. Some people call them soft skills. We've hugely undervalued those. Those are the things that are very difficult to automate. We need more and more folks with those skills because that's how you decipher problem to value. That's how you decipher how you frame a challenge so that it can be creating new value in the future. Underneath that is your ability to learn and below that is your identity, which I think is the driver that allows you to learn and adapt. So there's a lot, there are a lot of needs out there and we will get back to bringing more people back into the workforce. But I just, I think my number one message is hang on. It just sucks to lose your job. It really does. And a couple studies we use in the book that job loss and uh, unexpected change like that can take twice as long to recover from than the loss of a primary relationship. Because we've driven so hard on this occupational identity front, that you can't answer that question at a cocktail party anymore. What do you do? Never was the most important thing, but somehow we let it become it. And it's a trap. Okay, so not tying yourself up too much in your identity would be part of it. Not tying too much of your identity into your, into your job, but creating opportunities uh, for yourself as you move forward too, so that you may not live your job, but, but you can succeed better in your job, I suppose. Yeah, it can be more self-expression, which is what it should be. 
Right. And how about governments? Let's let's have a piece of advice uh, for governments who who help create economic conditions, help provide income support measures. We're seeing governments all around the world now providing immediate income support for people who have been forced to withdraw from the economy, been locked down. When we come out of this, do you see a, a different role for, for government in, in helping us adapt and adjust? Yeah, I, I mean, I see a role for government swelling dramatically very soon. It has already. I mean, we're sending checks to people, which is basically universal basic income. I saw in the before the pandemic, I thought we would have a period of universal basic income if technology accelerated so quickly that it accelerated faster than humans could adapt and technology consumed more tasks, therefore more jobs before humans could adapt and we could put them back in the, the workforce. But the pandemic has is been the tidal wave that crushed the wave I had in mind. And in the short and medium term, we're going to need government to just swell, help support people, help support businesses, and help people adapt. So the last part, I don't know if you see any kind of, uh, whether you see continuity or contradiction perhaps between those two parts, if you help people provide them income support and, and a basic uh, universal uh, income, would that at the same time be the same kind of set of policies as having active measures to help them adapt? Or, or are those in some ways going in two different directions at the same time? Yeah, people always have that assumption that if you can get support, you won't have the incentive to work again. I think, I don't know if that was that was what was under your question, but that's a little Well, well that, 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 that's one of the arguments yeah. uh, that one hears, or the, or the government money will be spent on that rather than on training, let's say. Right. So I think we have to put the expectation out there that being productive is going to be one of your responsibilities. Now, how we measure that, I'm not sure. And that this is temporary to get you to a period where you can be productive or contributing in some way. And I don't know that it's going to be the way it was in the past. I think most people want to work. And I don't mean want to work in the job that sucks or work in the job they don't like, but most people want to be productive. They want to feel like their life has meaning, that they're making contributions. There's a small percentage of the population that doesn't want to work and would be happy to just be paid. I can't do anything about that. You can't manufacture drive for people, but you can connect people to their purpose so they find opportunities in which they can contribute meaningfully. And I think that's our opportunity. Well, Heather, I want to thank you for your purposefulness today and, and these explanations and, and with the words you did in your book. As I said, I, I see it as being an optimistic can-do message, which is welcome in uh, a conversation that often sounds as much as that it's about the end of the world as it is about the future work. So it may be the end of the world as we knew it, but if change is going to come, we may as well be shaping it for the better rather than for the worse. Exactly. So, so I exactly. appreciate the new world might be even better. Well, we're uh, we'll, well, let's get together again in a couple of years and we'll sort of see how we're doing. We'll take the pulse every couple of years on that. And of course, we won't know for like looking back on the Industrial Revolution, we probably won't know for 100 or 150 years. So we'll check in again then because, of course, we will have 200 year life expectancies in any case. So yeah. thank you so much for being with us today, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Heather McGowan is the author of a new book on the future work, an important book that I recommend to you. And I also commend you to our upcoming Brave New Work conference that the Public Policy Forum is putting on June 16th and 18th. And I have a couple of our policy leads at the Public Policy Forum, Katie Davey and Andre Lokes. And we're going to um, talk about that as well in a minute. Okay. So welcome, Katie, and welcome, Andre. So Katie, let's start with you. What, was, what did you take away from that discussion? 
I was really interested in a few points, particularly the conversation around higher education. It's a topic that I've done some work in in the past, but I think the part about on the front end, expecting students or kids or whatever you want to, whatever word, people (laughs) rather, to automatically know what they want to do when they're 18 or when they arrive on a university campus. I I agree that that's a bit of a, a silly predicament that we still find ourselves in. I will say, though, in the Canadian context, there does seem to be more, I guess, adaptability at the college level. And there's also this idea of micro-credentialing that I've been interested in lately, right? And I think it's a bit of a bigger conversation around the value we put on different levels of education. So I was particularly struck by that. I also thought there was a little bit of an intergenerational part to the conversation that that we didn't really get into. And I think that was around the purpose-driven work. So for me, as you know, as a millennial, I very much identify as kind of a, a purpose over profit style of work environment. And that really does drive what I want to do and how I want to spend my time. So I do wonder what kind of intergenerational pieces within that and how we might address skilling and reskilling and older workers kind of around that narrative. So yeah, th- those are my immediate things I'm thinking about. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that if we really got better and the way that we want to get better at continuous learning, at lifelong learning, if we really made it lifelong, then we wouldn't probably need to do so much at the front end and feel that we have to do both the general and the specialization, all the specifics right away at the front end. We would maybe lay down more of a uh, of a foundation on which to continue to learn and, and just keep building and keep building and just never stop building knowledge, whether that's in the workplace or whether that's in the classroom. Yeah, I think that's right. And there was a brief mention about kind of soft skills. And I think those are a lot more difficult to kind of teach, but more important because there are a lot of hard skills at nowadays you can learn online, right? Like even how, how to do this podcast, we can learn those hard skills on YouTube, right? Whereas on the soft side, you can't really learn collaboration as well. And you can't really learn teamwork as well just by YouTubing a video. So I think, yeah, there's, there's kind of a reframing that still needs to occur. Okay, I'm just saying that I don't want my dentist, though, to be learning their hard skills online. Although it'd be good if they work on their soft skills, too. Um, <laughs> Andre, I'm going to turn to you for a second in terms of, of your takeaways, but particularly, I guess, in terms of how we apply them. You're programming our Brave New Work conference for June 16th to 18th. And I, some of these are issues, I guess, that you will be looking at, won't you? Yeah, absolutely. I was really struck by how many of the themes Heather brought up that we'll be talking about explicitly over the course of those three days, uh, as well as in the research that we're doing. We've got five upcoming research reports, and they'll they'll explore a lot of these things in a lot more detail. Uh, One of the things that I I specifically seized on and uh, would love to pick Heather's brain if we get another opportunity was the idea of uh, your job and your, your sort of career progression being more a question of how you move from job to job as opposed to what credentials you end up with at the end of your, of your education. And what struck me about that is just what that means for who ends up 
being left out or left behind because I think in, in a lot of cases we see education as sort of an equalizer, uh, leveling the playing field and making sure that everybody gets to the same start line. And if that matters less and less, what does that mean for the future? And uh, that's the kind of topic that we'll be talking about, uh, especially in day two of the conference program, in terms of the, the people who face barriers already to, to participation in the workforce and who are seeing the, some of those barriers exacerbated or magnified. And it's also something that's going to be explored in one of our upcoming research reports, where we'll be exploring what that means in terms of uh, hiring practices, which is exactly what Heather was talking about uh, in terms of recognizing talent outside of just those, those specific uh, credentials or, or education or even experiences before. How do you predict what's going to be used in the future? So that'll be in, in one of our reports and then talked about it in more detail at the conference too. So great to hear uh, all of that overlap. So so in the report that you're talking about, and, and I think there's five papers that you're publishing as well, Brave New Work papers, a second set of, of papers, because there was uh, a first set last year, and those will help animate uh, animate the conversation over the three days. But when, we, when, when in the work you're talking about around credentials, it seems to me that credentials are an important means of, uh, of communications and building confidence for employers and employees, but for employers particularly, particularly in a world where you break out of networks and people immigrate across oceans, et cetera. Do you know how to be an engineer? Do you know how to, how to make sure that the bridge won't collapse or whatever? What, what is the training? And the credential seems, uh, it's not just a piece of paper. It's a, yes, mm -hmm. I actually do have those skills right here. Question is, you know, do we recognize those credentials? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I, I think you're right, Ed. It doesn't completely go away, but I think relying too heavily on credentials leaves some people out uh, of the conversation, especially people who are, for instance, coming from overseas or who maybe have other barriers, language barriers or others. They might have the credentials, but they're still not getting the interview. And so what the research uh, is showing is that a lot of these things are coming up because employers are looking for proxies so that they can avoid the risk that they see associated with, with hiring somebody they've never met. And so what, what the research is trying to show, and, and you'll see this when the paper comes out, is about finding alternative ways to put employers at ease. And there are some really novel ways that you can do that, for instance, by changing your interview strategy and getting people to interact more upfront with a wider range of people, even recognizing that skills that you wouldn't normally associate with, uh, for instance, the tech sector, skills like sales and HR and, and some of the soft skills that we've been talking about, those actually set a person up really well for jobs in the tech sector, but they sometimes, those people with those skills sometimes get left out of those uh, recruitment strategies. And so just being a little bit more creative and finding different proxies for that sort of risk management tactic can really open up the conversation. Katie, you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, Ed, you kind of joked that you don't want your dentist to learn. No, you're going to come <laughs> back at me on, on that one. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm not actually. I, I tend to agree with you. I don't want, you know, uh, there, there is a certain um, subset of careers that do have highly specialized skills, but there's also a very large section of careers that don't and paths and, and jobs that don't. And I think, Andre, your point about the proxy, the kind of proxy for risk taking is super interesting because 
I think we do need to recognize that particularly small and medium-sized businesses, hiring is a huge risk for them in many cases, right? It, it costs money. And the, particularly for small businesses, if they don't have actual like dedicated HR teams and practices, it's, it's a huge level of risk. So actually, I've been thinking a little bit lately about what are those, what are the tools that, that whether it's policy, whether it's centralized decision-making or whatever that looks like that can help support removing those risks so that employers feel more comfortable expanding their network and, and taking chances. I think the other thing that's super interesting, and I'm going to bring it back to basic income, defining what we mean by work is important. And we haven't really redefined that yet. I think of in the, in the conversation around future of work, we talk about kind of automation reducing tasks rather than jobs. And I think that's really interesting, but I think we need to push it further and, and recognize that we might just need to reconceptualize what we mean by work. And if we do that, basic income, a basic income is one of the tools that can support that kind of redefinition. So I think, I think that's something that we still need to do. And I wonder if that will be, uh, I guess, a spinoff of COVID when we realize that there are different ways that we can work and different things that we can do. And, and you know, that uh, people have different abilities to kind of contribute meaningfully. Well, I think I'm going to say something radically economic to that, which is that it seems to me that that all kinds of different work uh, is valuable and not all kinds of work is paid. And some people think that all kinds of work, including household work, including caring for a loved one who might be ill, should be paid. And indeed, there are various refundable tax credits that uh, do provide some support in that case. But we have a challenge in society, and the challenge is particularly has to do with aging. And it used to be that it, you know, there were seven workers available to, to take care of each retiree in a sense. And now there's going to be four workers available to take care of each retiree. And in some way, something built into the definition of work has to be that you're able to contribute, to generate enough income, to generate enough productivity that you can be a net contributor to society, which needs more net contributors to pay for the people who have to be taken care of. That strikes me as part of it. We can't all be net takers. That's my mm -hmm. mathematical proposition for the day. Not very sophisticated, but there we go. Andre, you want to say something? Well, I, I think, Ed, you just recalled what Heather was talking about, about sort of a productivity imperative and, and trying to drive home the point and build it into our public policy somehow, that even if you are receiving some government support, the support is coming to you with the assumption that it's to enable you to participate in a productive way and to enable you to contribute. And so still run into the issue of whether that's monetized appropriately. And I think there's a whole separate question about whether we have the appropriate balance between uh, skills and remuneration. But regardless, I think her, her point about somehow driving home the idea that everybody uh, deserves to be and should be in, empowered to be productive, including things like a UBI or, or other supports to people to both weather the storm and to thrive afterwards, uh, I think that's a really valuable point. But I do, I do Katie, want to think about what this means after the pandemic for how we value different sort of degrees of skilled labor. And I think one of the things that we've seen is, is sort of a redefinition of the uh, work and labor that's essential in our, in our society. And uh, that those sometimes are some of the lowest paid jobs. And I think it's important to ask ourselves whether that uh, trade-off, if we've struck the right balance there between those two things. I don't have an answer. 
Well, I'll say I'll say, and then I come back to uh, the conference on the 16th to the 18th. I'd say that you know one of the concepts that we've talked about, Andre and Katie, at the public policy forum last, over the last couple of years, and Heather and I spoke about it a few moments ago, was this idea of policy being binary. And I think we've seen it exposed during the uh, during the pandemic that policy was about the idea that people are 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 in work or out of work, and we'll give them some support when they're out of work, and then they'll get back in work. And I think that's a good world if it works like. That. I think that's a very good world, and one of the things Canada's been pretty good at is getting people back uh, back into work compared to other countries. Our long-term unemployment is relatively lower than other than other countries. But what we've seen here is that our income support system isn't designed for variations in income as opposed to variations in the on-off switch of you're working or, or you're not working. And, and I think that's going to be a challenge as we move forward. And I think, uh, Andre, that's a challenge that, that in, in various of our brave new work types of, uh, of research that, uh, that we are and will continue to be looking at. And this gives you an opportunity, a final opportunity in this particular discussion to, to just talk about one last time, uh, the 16th, the 18th, and the highlights that, uh, that you're going to see there, two or three highlights for people who will participate in that conversation, and, and uh, maybe you'll tell them where they can register. Absolutely. You can register on the PPF website, PPF, ppforum.ca. Just check out the Brave New Work project page, and you'll find a link for registration. Registration is free. And we're delivering the conference over three days, June 16th, 17th, and 18th for two hours each afternoon. It's a great program. I'm really excited about all the in incredible speakers that we've got lined up and over 300 uh, registered participants now, which is fantastic. It's going to reach across Canada, coast to coast to coast. We'll be looking at things in sort of three parts. We'll start off on day one looking at what just happened. In the world of work, where are we? Where do we find ourselves? All these trends we've been talking about for the last 10 years suddenly came crashing into the present and, and we want to dissect that a little bit. And then day two, we'll take a look at what that actually means for people living through this uh, pandemic, for especially the, the people facing the most precarious situations. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about their experiences and, and the supports that are available to people. And then on day three, we'll uh, embrace some of Heather McGowan's sort of cautious optimism and think about the unique opportunity we have right now to shape a new future and a new status quo coming out of the pandemic. And we'll have a chat here from leaders both in the, in the public sector and also some university sector leaders if you want to hear more about Heather McGowan's ideas about the future of post-secondary education. Uh, day three, we'll have a chance to get into that conversation in more depth. So it's a great program and I hope everybody uh, registers. Okay, so I hope you will all join us as well. And those uh, post-secondary leaders that you talk about, Andre, and that Heather talked about, I don't think anybody has it as hard as they do in a sense about thinking how they are going to adapt to the future and adapt to the future on behalf of, of the people who uh, count on their institutions to get them attachment to workforce, to develop their life, their life skills, to, to enrich them and empower them. So uh, they've got a lot, of, a lot of challenges and a lot of thinking to do as, as we all around, uh, around the future of work. And it, let's hope that this pandemic is over soon and let's hope that economies unlock and that we get back to growth. But the future work issues that we're talking about, they're not going anywhere. They gotta be uh, dealt with because technology marches on for better and for worse. So thank you both, uh, Andre and Katie, for joining, uh, for joining me at the end of this conversation today.
and good luck with your conference, Andre. Thank you so much. I, I guess it's kind of our conference too. It's all of ours. It's our, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very much a team effort. All right. At the end of our podcast, we like to take a moment to salute some of the above and beyond the Call of Duty efforts being made by PPF members and partners. Today, a shout out to the Canadian Bankers Association, which is the voice of more than 60 domestic and foreign banks that help finance Canada's economic growth and prosperity. The CBA has taken extra measures during the COVID-19 pandemic to equip the public with both accessible business intelligence, as well as information on cybersecurity. It is out there helping small and medium-sized businesses sort their way through a panoply of new measures designed to help them cope with the crisis. In addition to C-suite leadership, the CBA regular posts public briefings on how to spot phishing scams, how to stay vigilant about fraud prevention and protect our digital lives, and the furthering of the cause of digital accessibility generally. Thank you to the Canadian Bankers Association for going to such great lengths to steward and protect banks and clients through this time. And I also want to shout out to the Metcalf Foundation. The Metcalf Foundation works with Canadians to improve the health and vibrancy of our communities, our culture, and our environment, and has busy doubling down during the COVID-19 crisis. Metcalf President and CEO Sandy Houston issued an open letter recently addressing the severe, unequal, and often unjust impacts of the pandemic on Canadians in general and specifically on sector-focused organizations. In answer to this, the Metcalf Foundation Board decided to significantly increase their grants this year in order to provide much-needed additional resources to sustain the nonprofit sector in Canada. These additional funds will be focused on emergency response, sector-focused support, and forward-looking action. So thank you to the Metcalf Foundation for your vision, leadership, and commitment to sustain organizations so they can do their work helping out Canadians, particularly at this challenging time. Okay, that's a wrap on this edition of our podcast. I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and our distribution partner, National Newswatch. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppformca. Until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.